This is the History of the World podcast with me, Chris Hasler. And you're listening to Volume 3, The Classical World. Episode 48, The Reign of Constantine. Introduced the Tetrarchy, a new system of governing the Roman Empire that would ensure that there was a much more localised imperial leadership. The man responsible for the system was the Roman Emperor called Diocletian. Diocletian would split the Roman Empire into two halves. He would ask his junior emperor, a man called Maximian, to rule over the western lands, with his own junior emperor ruling over Gaul and Britannia, whose name was Constantius Chlorus. Diocletian would concentrate on the lands of the east, and he would also have a junior emperor responsible for the European lands south of the Danube, including Greece, and his name was Galerius. This period around the turn of the 4th century was not without rebellions, but it was comparatively stable when we consider the chaos of the 3rd century as described in the last episode. Diocletian and Maximian would complete a 20-year term as co-emperors, with both Constantius and Galerius still as their Caesars. The year was 305, and Diocletian determined that with a completed 20-year period both he and Maximian should retire and their Caesars be promoted to be the Augusti, or the Emperors. The retirement of an Emperor was unprecedented. Emperor Tiberius had attempted to do it over 250 years earlier, but it was nothing official and more of a sneak off into the comfort of obscurity while Sianus was happy to rule in his absence. Diocletian's approach to being in charge of the Roman Empire had similar echoes to the time of Marcus Aurelius almost 150 years earlier. If you recall in episode 45, we told the story of how Marcus Aurelius opted to share the leadership of the empire, but this wasn't a move of insecurity from Aurelius. In fact, it was the opposite with Marcus Aurelius ruling with confidence. The same can be said of Diocletian. Diocletian's rule demonstrated a selfless system designed to reshape the method of rule and create a model that would work when it came to succession, solving the problem of the 3rd century. So Diocletian and Maximian would both retire on the same day and Galerius and Constantius became the new emperors. Valerius Severus and Maximinus Dyer would be the men named as replacement Caesars, both men closely associated with the Emperor Galerius. The first major problem occurred in the following year, 306. The man who had successfully put down and eliminated a major rebellion in Britannia 
during the previous century, namely Constantius, was up in Eboracum, which is the modern city of York in England. Constantius had been battling against the Picts to the north of Hadrian's Wall. But much as Septimius Severus had done at the start of the 3rd century while in Eboracum, Constantius died. It would be his army who would declare that his son would succeed him as Emperor of the West. His name was Flavius Valerius Constantinus, known to us as Constantine. The problem was that this was not how the succession was meant to take place. It should have been the Caesar Valerius Severus who took over according to the normal course of the Tetrarchy and with the blessing of Galerius. With Valerius Severus now in control in the West, we could assume that he would have an issue with Constantine. There was however a completely different problem emerging in the city of Rome. The son of the retired Emperor Maximian revolted against the instatement of Severus and his name was Maxentius. Galerius would encourage Severus to deal with the rebellion but Maxentius would pull on the resources of his father Maximian to defeat Severus. Severus would retreat northwards and Maxentius would rule alongside his father Maximian. So this had now set a new precedent where the succession of the rulers of the Tetrarchy had started to descend into the same chaos as the position of ruler before Diocletian's accession. By 310, all of the emperors of the various provinces were stylizing themselves as an Augustus, beginning to form alliances and create enemies among themselves. With a rebellion in Africa, there were no less than seven men declaring themselves as Roman emperors. So the empire was beginning to fragment. Rise of Constantine We are aware that Constantine would become a memorable Roman emperor. So how did he rise above the rest? And how did the Roman Empire survive this challenging period? The period after the retirement of Diocletian is not dissimilar to the situation with the Diadochi in the wake of the death of Alexander the Great, with many leaders of provinces switching alliances according to the mutual benefits available. While Maxentius was usurping the provinces under the rule of the Western Emperor, Constantine stayed in the background. He remained distant while Valerius Severus was resisted by Maxentius and was possibly executed in the aftermath. He continued to remain distant when the senior emperor of the entire empire, Galerius, attempted to remove Maxentius from the city of Rome himself. It may have simply been that Constantine was consolidating his position in Britannia and didn't see any value in marching on Rome until it suited him. Eventually, it would have to suit him though, as his troops would have demanded success and they got behind Constantine for a reason. Maxentius 
was using his father's reputation and influence to keep the troops on his side, and it seems that Maxentius would also show intention of striking up some sort of alliance with Constantine, possibly to stave off Galerius. Although Constantine would marry Maxentius's sister, he would never break off his healthy relationship with Galerius, choosing to hedge his bets. Maximian himself would travel to Gaul and give Constantine his daughter's hand and personally declare him an Augustus. It would be what happened when Maximian returned to Rome that was interesting. The father-son alliance between Maximian and Maxentius that had served Maxentius so well in terms of gaining control of the city of Rome had turned sour. It seemed that the size of the two characters were destined not to last, with Maximian claiming credit for his son's success and Maxentius refusing to acknowledge that anybody but himself was in actual control. Maximian had a reputation for harsh rule and the Praetorian Guard had already relished the opportunity to move on from this when Maximian retired on the first occasion when he did so alongside Diocletian in 305. As such, the Praetorian Guard supported Maxentius, and his father, Maximian, had to leave Rome. Maximian would head to the lands of his son-in-law, Constantine, in the northwest of the empire, in Gaul and Britannia. Constantine received the father of his wife warmly, but it seems that Maximian had reached a desperate stage of his life. Whether he was comfortable as emperor before Diocletian forced retirement on him and he couldn't handle retirement, we may never know. However, it didn't seem to be enough for Maximian to simply be the father of an emperor, or even the father-in-law of an emperor. Once Maximian had got his feet warm in the lands of Constantine, he possibly fabricated a story of Constantine's death and took control of his treasury. Constantine was quick to react and Maximius fled to Massilia, which was the ancient Greek colony of Massalia, which we introduced in episode 9, and is also the modern French city of Marseille. The people of the city surrendered Maximian to Constantine and Maximian eventually committed suicide in captivity. In the following year of 311, the senior Roman Emperor Galerius died. Galerius's longtime ally, a man called Licinius, took control of the European lands of the Eastern Empire, with Maximinus Dyer still in control of the Asian provinces of the Eastern Empire as he continuously had been since the retirement of Diocletian. Maxentius continued to enjoy control of Italy, but the people were growing tired of his tyrannical rule. His actions seemed disingenuous, especially when he tried to honour his father's memory, despite previously expelling him from Rome and then publicly denouncing Constantine's status by pulling down his statues only to try and sneak a political negotiation with him later. The people were fed up with the snakiness 
of Maxentius and appealed to Constantine to dethrone him. For Constantine, Maxentius was a man whose ambitions could not be trusted and it would serve him well to have him removed from power before Maxentius could successfully plot against him. Constantine seemed to be a man of decisive action. So when the decision had been made to oust Maxentius, Constantine acted very purposefully. Constantine invaded northern Italy after crossing the Alps. Maxentius remained in Rome, but his armies headed north to deal with this 40,000 strong army invading their land. The first battle was in 312, and it was the Battle of Turin, the city then known as Augusta Taurinorum. When Constantine started gaining the upper hand, the people of Turin refused to allow refuge to the forces of Maxentius, which allowed Constantine to gain control of northern Italy. The people of northern Italy welcomed this invasion against Maxentius. Constantine would then win a further victory at the Battle of Verona, where he killed Maxentius' senior military commander. It was now time for Constantine to march on Rome itself. The climax of Constantine's rivalry with Maxentius took place on the 28th of October 312 at the Battle of the Milvian Bridge. This battle is not just of major significance to Roman history, but it is also of major significance to the history of the Christian Church. We are going to take a closer look at this battle in next week's episode, such is its significance. But for now, we are just going to continue with the story of Constantine's rise to historical fame. The Ponte Milvio is a bridge to the north of the city of Rome which crosses the Tiber River and represents a very important crossing point for anyone approaching Rome from the north alongside the west coast of the Italian peninsula. It was at this crossing that the forces led by Constantine met with the forces led by Maxentius. Accounts will tell us that Constantine saw a vision which prompted him to paint a Christian symbol on his soldiers' shields before the battle. It may have been this omen that aided Constantine to victory over Maxentius, with Maxentius's ultimate fate being that he drowned in the Tiber. His body was recovered and decapitated, with the severed head being paraded around Rome as a symbol of Constantine's success. In the aftermath, Constantine would consolidate his new position as Emperor of the Western Roman Empire by enforcing his healthy relationship with Licinius, who was his imperial neighbour in the east. This would put the Roman Emperor in Asia, Maximinus Dyer, in an awkward position as he had pledged allegiance with Maxentius and was now possibly facing hostility from Licinius as a consequence. This would erupt into open warfare at the Battle of Tyralum on the European side of the Propontis, the modern-day Sea of Marmara, in the year 313. Licinius would defeat Maximinus Dyer 
and in the aftermath he would push Maximinus Dyer out of his Asian lands. This would include the province of Egypt, which was included in Maximinus Dyer's territories. And this is significant because Maximinus Dyer was officially the named pharaoh of Egypt as a consequence. When Licinius dethroned Maximinus Dyer and took his lands, he would not concern himself with the title of pharaoh of Egypt, and therefore the title became obsolete for the first time in almost three and a half millennia. Maximinus Dyer died in the summer of 313, having lost all of his power to Licinius. Now, there were just two supreme monarchs, or Augusti, left in the Roman Empire. The allies, Constantine in the west and Licinius in the east. So, things should have been harmonious after this, but it seems that there was an underlying lack of trust between Constantine and Licinius. It might have been a simple case of their differing motivations coming into conflict with each other, one man's enemy becoming another man's fugitive. Or if we're really cynical, we could suppose that Constantine and Licinius believed that each other had similar ambitions to be sole emperor. One thing that we can be sure of is that after the retirement of Diocletian, the whole theory of the Tetrarchy being the solution to the lack of stability in the Roman Empire was as good as junk by the 10th anniversary of his decision to step down. By the year 316, Constantine had decided to take an army over the understood border between the two halves of the Roman Empire into the lands of the modern country of Croatia and do battle with the larger force of Licinius at the Battle of Cibali. Constantine scored a great victory, which forced Licinius into making some embarrassing concessions, such as recognising Constantine's children as Caesars in the West, to ceding the Balkan Peninsula from the Eastern Empire to the Western Empire. Despite there being a period of peace following these exchanges, the tensions of distrust and resentment would still exist between Constantine and Licinius, and it would surely only be a matter of time before a sequence of events would lead to a military exchange between the two of them once again. The barbarian Germans of Middle Europe didn't care much for the concerns between the two men and would welcome the opportunity to take advantage of the Roman Empire's misfortunes. And so Constantine's military energies were engaged in those issues towards the end of the 310s. It appears that this distraction to Constantine was quite interesting for Licinius, who would have been pleased to see Constantine having to waste resources on battling against the Germans. One of the barbarian invasions caused Constantine to give chase through the lands of the Eastern Roman Empire, and that would mark as good a time as any for Licinius to take revenge on Constantine by suggesting that he's crossing the border could be defined as an act of war. And after years of fighting barbarians, Licinius may have supposed that it was unlikely that Constantine's forces would have been any less vulnerable at any other time. This didn't work out well for Licinius though in actuality. 
the two huge armies met at the Battle of Adrianople in 324 and Constantine was victorious. This time, Constantine realised that the threat of Licinius was not going away and needed to be dealt with conclusively. One of Constantine's junior emperors was his son, Crispus. Crispus would lead a naval fleet to the Hellespont, while his father would venture further east to the highly important strategical city of Byzantium on the Bosporus Strait. Crispus scored a crushing victory over the Licinian fleet, reportedly wiping most of them out. The pressure of the siege of Byzantium forced Licinius to leave the city across the Bosporus Strait with the remainder of his troops and attempt to hastily arrange a new army to do battle with the inevitably approaching Constantine who would follow Licinius into Asia Minor with his army. The two armies would engage at the Battle of Chrysopolis in September of that same year, 324. What has been described as a great slaughter took place on that battlefield on that day and Licinius's forces were very definitely defeated. This marked the end of the Tetrarchy as Constantine had successfully taken the honour of Augustus bestowed on him at Iboricum in Britannia by the troops of his deceased father in 306 and taken them to victory in Rome and then ultimately in Asia Minor to be able to unite the Roman Empire once more. Licinius was ultimately executed at the command of Constantine. Reforms So we have learned of how Constantine went from being the son of one of a group of Roman emperors to the emperor of the entire empire. But what is the significance of his reign? Certainly it feels like we have gone back in time with the formation of the Tetrarchy of multiple monarchs effectively being abolished. Surely there would have been a danger of the empire descending back into the chaos of the 3rd century. However bizarre all of this may seem, Constantine would continue to be the emperor for some years to come. And we can certainly say that the Roman Empire had irreversibly changed and this in part was thanks to Constantine. But it is the legacy of Constantine created by the scribes who documented his life that is perhaps the most powerful aspect of his existence as he had become an icon of the rise of Christianity in the known world. I don't think that it's necessarily fair to say that the significance of Constantine's reign should be restricted to its impact on Christianity though. We could argue that this reign marks a large part of the Roman Empire's transition from being a classical empire to a medieval empire. And we could also suggest a major orientalisation of the Roman Empire in its journey to becoming the predecessor of the Byzantine Empire. It is definitely worth pinpointing some of the actual changes that were going on at around this time period. The difficult thing about Constantine's legacy is that a number of alterations within the Roman Empire have been attributed to him, but are not necessarily down to him. For example, some of the military reforms that I have read 
as being described as Constantine may have actually been the reforms of Diocletian before him, such as distinguishing field armies from frontier armies so that legions were specialised according to their skill sets. Should an invasion occur from beyond the border of the empire, then the Limitani would defend the border forts until the arrival of the field army, the Comitatensis. This was one of the notable major reforms since the Marian reforms of the turn of the 1st century BCE. It is difficult to pinpoint exactly when this difference in forces emerged and who was responsible. We do know that Constantine addressed the role of the Praetorian Prefect which had existed since the reign of Augustus and a position held by a number of future emperors and by Sianus, one who effectively had the influence of an emperor in the absence of Tiberius during the first century. This role would be abolished in favour of local prefects who would each administer a quarter of the empire in a much more bureaucratic role than it had been in years gone by. It was becoming clear that Italy and Rome by the 4th century were starting to lose some of their appeal and glamour, with it becoming an archaic reminder of a failed empire. Diocletian had chosen to take control of the eastern half of the empire, establishing a capital city at Nicomedia in Asia Minor near the Bosporus Strait. From here, the empire could be ruled much more effectively with its proximity to any invasions by the Goths and the Sasanians being an advantage not shared by Rome. Constantine would want to rule from this area too, but he would be much more attracted to the city of Byzantium on the European banks of the Bosporus Strait. And so he made this the capital city of the Roman Empire and chose to rename the city in honour of himself. And so therefore the modern Turkish city of Istanbul became Constantinople. Aristocrats and wealthy landowners no longer had a hands-on approach to the rule of the empire, something that was much more of a classical world characteristic. Now, the aristocrats would live the good life and the landowners would benefit from laws passed by Constantine that effectively tied tenant farmers to the land of their landlord and this would much more resemble the system of medieval serfdom. The solidus coin was also created as a new lightweight gold coin and this would be an important coin for the residents of Constantinople and its surrounding empire for the next seven centuries. There were so many changes taking place in the Roman Empire during the period of rule from the beginning of Diocletian's reign to the end of Constantine's that we can suggest that this was the end of classical Rome and the beginning of something else. Especially as this was also a time when something fundamental and considerable happened to the Roman Empire. Since the first century, the religion of Christianity had emerged as an offshoot of Judaism. Christians believed that Jesus Christ, the Jewish religious preacher who lived at the beginning of the first century, was born as the Son of God. And this is something that split opinions within the Jewish communities. Those who believed that this was true became followers of Christianity, separating themselves from those Jews who did not accept this as true. 
Christianity certainly wasn't a mainstream belief, like we know it today during its initial emergence. It was a minor religion within a polytheistic Roman Empire. It was this fact that often brought the religion into bother during its earliest years with the Roman Empire, with Judaism having a degree of status and protection. Christianity was seen as somewhat radical with its followers regarded as a nuisance to the Roman constitution due to the fact that it preached against Roman polytheism. And so the followers could be targeted by emperors such as Nero looking for a scapegoat that Romans could easily agree on as anti-Roman sentimentalists. Otherwise, Christians within the empire were generally ignored. Persecution of the Christians within the Roman Empire became more common but religious persecution was not abnormal in classical societies. It is often simply depended on the tolerance of the monarch of the day and the land. However, it may have been the general failure of the Roman Empire during the 3rd century which caused more Christian conversions within the empire and caused Diocletian and Galerius to target Christians within the empire like never before in what has been described as the Great Persecution. After Diocletian retired in 305, Galerius continued the persecution until he fell mortally ill at the turn of the year 311. It is around this time that the Edict of Serdica was issued by Galerius which stopped the persecution and granted Christians a place in the Roman Empire where they could be recognised and tolerated for their religious beliefs, similar in status to the Jews. Some say that this late act was due to his fear of retribution from the Christian God. As we already know, the two most prominent imperial leaders of the next decade or so in the Roman Empire were Constantine and Licinius. The next major event on our timeline is the Edict of Milan in 313, which is often cited as a breakthrough moment when Constantine allowed Christianity to be practised in the Roman Empire. It's not that simple though. Licinius and Constantine likely met near the Roman city of Mediolanum, the modern city of Milan, and formed a pact to secure the future of the Roman Empire by agreeing to rule their halves of the empire side by side. The religious aspect seems to grant a general religious tolerance which included Christianity and is very likely to have affected the lands of Licinius in the east far more than Constantine in the west, quite possibly because we have evidence of Licinius distributing a directive to his local governors confirming the recognition of Christianity within the empire. Constantine's mother, Helena, was a practising Christian herself, which possibly added to Constantine's religious empathy for Christianity. This was not the first time that a mandate for Christian tolerance had been issued within the empire either. It's just that many others were only upheld for a short time. There may be nothing particularly special about the Edict of Milan in the grand scheme of things, and Constantine only played a part in its implementation. But it has become iconic as an aspect of Constantine's success in bringing Christianity to the forefront of Roman religion. But we must be absolutely careful to keep this in perspective. 
And we will endeavour to do that next week when we scrutinise Constantine's relationship with Christianity in our next episode about the Battle of Milvian Bridge. Absolutely brilliant episode. I really enjoyed writing that. And um, it's, a, it's such a pivotal time in European history uh, that it's, um, you know, it really, I, I find it quite captivating. I think the, I think you can see that the classical Rome and, and that, um, you know, that, that Rome that we see in so many sort of Shakespearean plays, that kind of Rome um, that we see in, in epic films like uh, Gladiator, uh, that that's sort of pretty much gone now. We're sort of moving forward, and um, uh, next week we'll we'll look at the Battle of Milvian Bridge, and then after that, really, we're we're looking at the decline of R- the Roman Empire. We're we're really looking at how it sort of uh, the era sort of comes to an end. But it, the Roman Empire doesn't completely end it, it just changes and in, into something that we recognize as something different in history so um next week we'll um we'll look at the battle of milvian bridge but after that then we'll just look at how uh, the roman empire sort of declined from its uh, from the state that we're familiar with it as uh, we've told this story for the last sort of oh, it must be about 25 episodes now it's incredible isn't it um so uh, then we'll summarise Rome and then and then we move on. So, exciting stuff. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode. As ever, if you want to support the podcast, just rate and review us wherever you listen to us. That's, uh, there's so much value in that. And of course, if you want to make any kind of financial contribution, you can sign up. Just go to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and click on the patreon link or you can click on the buy me a book link that's uh, equally useful in terms of making contributions especially a one-off one which some people prefer to do but i recommend the patreon link because then you can sign up to a monthly donation and you qualify for rewards over time so um some of our patrons of uh, and the right to ask a question that gets answered during a podcast episode. Uh, many of them have been sent um, History of the World podcast uh, paraphernalia like fridge magnets and key rings, that kind of thing. But then also, some of them have actually qualified uh, for the T-shirts and the mugs. So that's uh, that's when you really get deep into uh, being a Patreon. Uh, or being a patron, I should say, on Patreon. And also, um, some have commissioned their own podcast episodes, so I will write you your own episode as well, so that's something to consider. Anyway, that's really not why we're here. We're here to talk about history, fundamentally. That's uh, that's only for those who want to support the project and uh, give me a, a bit of a helping hand. But other than that, it's uh we keep going we, we we don't stop we don't need the money to continue um we've uh, we're generating enough that we can keep the podcast going so thank you very much to everyone who does contribute and um as ever um let's have a look and see if we've got any messages this week um i've got one from art 
SRX, who says, Hi, your podcast is incredible. I've discovered it some weeks ago and I'm already in the origins of writing. Just wanted to say thanks for that magnificent labour and for making a lot of people like me learn and enjoy history. Cheers and most of all, thanks. Um, well, thank you for sending me the message. It's not everyone that um, is able to send me a message, so when I do get a message, it really helps uh, me to uh, know that the work's appreciated and, and it also validates what I'm doing. So like, it's, it's nice to know that uh, the broadcast is being enjoyed. Um, Patrick Trudgeon sent me um, an article about um, Newgrange, the Irish Neolithic tomb. I've posted that on the Facebook page, so if you're not following me on Facebook, uh, go and do that now and read uh, this wonderful article on uh, Newgrange in Ireland, the Neolithic monument. The um, the Twitter page is also a good one to follow me on because I tend to retweet a lot of interesting stuff on there. So if you're sort of bored and you want to read a few things about history, some interesting stuff, I try and follow all the right people and, and retweet all the right stuff. So uh, hopefully that's uh, another interesting social media place to visit the History of the World podcast. One review that I noticed this week um, as uh, it's from Leicester Square who's put history of the world bloody brilliant I'm learning so much Chris thank you my ears can't put it down uh, thank you thank you Leicester Square uh, for that um, I, I could have guessed that you you're from Great Britain and I could have easily guessed that and um, thank you to everyone that has written in and who has reviewed the podcast. It, it really does go a long way and it's, it's very, very much appreciated. So thank you so, so much. Anyway, that's it for another week. Next week, as I say, the Battle of Milvian Bridge. A very, very significant battle um, in European history. So not to be missed. Don't go anywhere. Make sure that you're listening next week. So until we come back to you with that one, be good. Do you want more from the History of the World podcast? Then visit our website, historyoftheworldpodcast.com. You can join our discussion forum and find us on social media. Support the podcast for as little as $1 per month by clicking the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. The best ones will be read out. Be sure to rate and review the show wherever you listen to us.